Let's have a, a word of prayer together, okay? So um, I invite you to bow your, your heads with me. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for beautiful Sabbath day that you've provided for us today. Uh, Deb and I are very thankful that we could travel up here this morning, that we had travel mercies all the way here, and uh, that we can meet with the saints here. We are thankful for your wonderful bounties that you give to us each and every moment and, and the wonderful blessings we receive. Uh, Lord, we pray that you will give us of the Holy Spirit this morning. Uh, may we have discernment and understanding. I pray that the Holy Spirit comes into hearts and minds and minds and, and prepares them for the word of truth today. Uh, we thank you so much for Jesus, all that he has done for us and is doing for us as our mediator in heaven, and the forgiveness that you, you show us so freely. Uh, we pray that you'll be with those who couldn't be with us this morning and be with those who are ill. And I especially lift up our families and our young people, uh, our children. Uh, Father, we pray that uh, you will not only protect them, but uh, convict their hearts that they may return home, uh, home to you. And Lord, those of us who, uh, though we have our failings, uh, we profess to love and follow you, help us to be stronger in our faith and to have love for one another. We thank you. Lord, especially for hearing this prayer. It's prayed in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> I've entitled this particular message, um, The Doors. The Doors. As a person with a carpentry background, I've worked on a lot of doors and windows, you can imagine, in my time. I've run into windows, and, and I'm sure you probably have too, uh, that were stuck, and that they were no, I didn't physically run into windows. Who runs into a window? Birds. Birds. Right. Okay. But I've run into. Let me finish my sentence. I've run into windows that were stuck, uh, so tight, and a lot of times it's because they've been painted. You know, uh, that I I've run into those where I've had to disassemble them just to get them open. I've run into that before, and I've had to wax them before. Some of you carpenters out there know what I'm talking about. Um, I've also had doors that would not open because of, well, one thing or another, uh, like broken latches or uh, dropped hinges, or or sometimes the old wooden doors would swell, and so I had to deal with those. Garage doors have been the worst to open if the spring's broken. You really can't do that. You you can't just walk over and lift a garage door up if it has a broken spring. Yeah. It just is too heavy. Um, I've also had the same kind of experiences with windows and doors that you could not close. Um, probably more so with doors, as a hinge may warp or drop the door so low that you're not able to latch it properly. Um, but did you know that the Bible talks about open and closed doors that you cannot get to move? And I want to share that with you today. I want to share something about this with you. Um, I want to begin our study by looking at something wonderful. I believe it's wonderful. It's found in Matthew chapter 16. And did you get the bulletin? Yes, okay. Matthew chapter 16. Well, the paragraph actually begins in verse 13, but I'm going to start reading in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 16. And we've read this many times before, uh, but like the rest of God's Word, it is good uh, for us to dwell on it. Um, Matthew 16, beginning with verse 16, And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, now notice this, what Jesus says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall what? Shall not prevail. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I believe this is a wonderful promise. And when these words were spoken, and they were spoken after the feeding of the 5,000, uh, you read about that two chapters before, 
Um, but great multitudes had left Jesus at this time. They, they forsook him. Uh, at this time, there was just a handful of men and a few women who were faithful followers of our Savior. And Jesus made this wonderful, I believe it's a wonderful pronouncement. He said to Peter, he said, you are Petros. And I've covered this before, uh, but Petros here, that Greek word, it's, it's like a rolling stone, a pebble, is what he's saying to Peter. You're, you're a rolling stone, you're a pebble. But upon this Petra, and I can just imagine him pointing to himself, Jesus pointing to himself, and he says, upon this Petra, and that was a Greek word, it meant this rock, it was a boulder, I'm going to build my church. Now, who is the rock? That's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, isn't it? He says, you know, that Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the, the rock. Upon this rock I will build my church, Jesus says, and the gates of hell shall what? shall not prevail against it. Do you believe that? Sometimes uh, I see things and I wonder. I just wonder if we actually believe it. You know, Satan will put doors. Jesus said here, gates, the gates of hell. Satan will put doors or gates in the pathway of the church, but these doors, according to our Savior here, according to the Master, he says these doors will not be able to prevail against the movement of the church. Okay. These are doors that can be opened by the church. Does that sound fair? Something else we learn from this statement of Jesus is that from that time until now, God has always had a church and will have a church until Jesus comes again, which I believe is very, very soon. When Jesus comes again, friends, he's coming for his church. Do you believe that? Isn't that the sole purpose? We talked about it a bit uh, before. We talked about the bride of Christ. Now, this church has been attacked. The devil's put up gates from hell against the church. Why am I hearing myself? I keep hearing myself speaking here through a speaker. It's kind of distracting. But the church has been attacked. The devil has put up gates from hell against the church throughout history. Millions of uh, her adherents down through the ages have been martyred. We see that if you, you study church history. And when I say down through the ages, are you aware of the fact that during the 20th century, it's estimated that between 100 and 200 million Christians were martyred? That's in the 20th century. That means in the 1900s, friends. Now, talking about the Dark Ages. And Christians are still being martyred today. Even more so today. You get over in the Middle East and you, you really see how the devil is, is attacking the church. So the church has been under attack, but we have the Lord's promise. And whether I live or die, whether you live or die, the promise is that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Because Jesus is coming for His church. He's coming for His people. Amen? And when Jesus comes, the gates of the graves of God's children are all going to be opened. That's what the Bible tells us. Those gates can be opened. Those are the gates that the devil has put in to try to keep us dead, but they'll be open. They won't be stuck closed forever. And that's a wonderful promise too, isn't it? And I'm going to tell you, friends, that when God says that something is going to be opened, you cannot shut it. The devil and his entire host, if you die in Christ, cannot stop you from coming out of the grave when Jesus comes back. 
And when God says something is to be opened, nobody can shut it. And if God says something is to be shut, nobody can open it. Now, the book of Revelation is is a favorite book, and it should be uh, the remnant people's favorite book. And it's one of my favorite books in the Bible. Do you know that the book of Revelation was not written to the whole world? Do you know that? God has written some parts of the Bible for the whole world. In the book of Daniel, you'll find a vision. You'll find a dream that God gave to King Nebuchadnezzar. You remember that? Daniel chapter 2. It was an outline of the future history of the world given to a heathen king and to all the peoples of the world. So God has written some parts of the Bible for all mankind, but there are some parts of the Bible that are special. Turn to Revelation chapter 1. Let's go to Revelation chapter 1, and let's see who this book, who this is written to. We're going to find that it's not written to the whole world. And I believe that's why people of the world can't understand it. That's why they, the people of the world have many and varied, many and very different ideas of what it's actually saying, but they don't understand it. You see, they have to, they have, to have the people of the church, God's people, explain it to them. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. Notice what it says here. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto who? What's it say there? To show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. So who is the book of Revelation written to? Go to the very end of Revelation. If you go to the end of the book, Revelation 22 and verse 16. Notice what it says. It says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto these things in the what? The churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. So both at the beginning and at the end of Revelation, we're told who this book is written to. And it's written to Christ's servants. It's written to the churches isn't it? Now, as you would expect, the very first vision in Revelation starts talking about the churches. For instance, in chapter 1 and verse 11, it says, What thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches. And so the book of Revelation is written to the church. It's written to God's servants. And if you profess to be a servant of the Almighty God, this book is written to you. Revelation chapter 1 verse 19 says, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. And this is a point I want you to notice very clearly here in verse 19. When John writes to the churches, he's writing about things that are, but he's also writing about things that are going to happen in the future. That's a very important point to understand. So, you see, you, you need to understand this verse to understand the message to the church. It is written about the present. John's writing it. He's written about the present. But it's also written about the future. So, if you had come to the city of Ephesus, it was a seaport city. You sail in, you come into to Ephesus, and then you got on a Roman road at Ephesus and you followed it. You'd next come to a city that was called Smyrna. And if you stayed on that Roman road, you went through Smyrna, you stayed on the Roman road, and you went past that city, you'd next come to another city called Pergamos. And let's say you went through Pergamos, and you stayed on the Roman road, and you went past Pergamos. Eventually you'd come to another city called Thyatira. And, but you're a traveling person. See, you're on the Roman road, and you go through uh, that city, you come to another city then on the road called Sardis. And if you stayed on the Roman road, you went you know, through Sardis, you eventually would come to a sixth city that was called Philadelphia. And if you went past that city, you're still on that same Roman road, eventually you'd come to a seventh city. You, you know what that city would be called? 
And what it was called? Laodicea. Do you see something about this that grabs your attention? Now, these were actual cities. And they are given in geographical order here, starting with Ephesus. And what we, what we also have here are descriptions. They're not just cities, but the Bible is a spiritual book as well, isn't it? And so when it's talking about these churches, these cities and these churches, we also find that in the description of these cities, these churches that were there, we find a description of all of God's people that are in the church. And so we should understand as Christians that these messages to the churches were not uh, just for the present in John's day, but as we, we just read in Revelation 1 verse 19, they were also given for the future. And as we study history from that time, going through the different periods of the Christian church, astonishingly we find that the experience of the majority of the predominant number of the people in the Christian church at the different times in Christian history exactly coincides with the characteristics given in Revelation about these seven churches. It's pretty remarkable how God does that. (laughs) However, there is something else we need to remember. Everybody in the church does not necessarily have the experience of the church that is living in the period of time described. And this is where a lot of misunderstandings about who and what the church who and what the church is. This is where a lot of misunderstandings originate. People get stuck on that history account and say, well, then everybody who's in the Laodicean church, that last church, that time that we're in, is a Laodicean. And that's a fatal mistake. That can be a fatal mistake. You see, my friends, there might be people in the same group, the same organized church, having the spiritual experience of any one of these seven churches. And the same can be said of a group that is among several groups in the same organization. Can you see that? So we need to study about them, all of them, so that we can have clear discernment and not be confused. This will help remove some misunderstandings that are out there about the church and how it is organized and who it is. And when you read those little red books, you know the little red books I'm talking about, you Adventists? Sadly today, they are actually little red books, even though they are red in color. But if you read those little red books, you'll find that there were times when Ellen White took the church of Ephesus, for example, and applied it to Seventh-day Adventists. And then there were times when she took the experience of the church at Sardis and she applied it to Seventh-day Adventists. And there's a lesson there, you see. Now, I cannot go through all the churches uh, today I'm thinking very seriously about going through uh, each church so that we can understand these things a little bit more clearly. So that may be down the road here, that Roman road. (laughs) Uh, But I'm going to look at one specifically with you today. Now, I'll quickly go through all seven of them with you, though. I will give you just kind of a snapshot picture that you can study out later on on your own, which I always encourage. The first church, remember, mentioned it before, Ephesus, that seaport city. We could describe this as the loveless church because they'd lost their first love. So if you've lost your first love, then you're in that Ephesus church. The second church, the church at Smyrna, as we go down that road, we could describe as the persecuted church. And if you're enduring persecution, whether it's on your job, Jerry had applied for a job today, but they make it mandatory that you have to work on the Sabbath. Now, if you were already working for them and they said you're going to have to work on the Sabbath, 
there could be some persecution there, couldn't there? So if you're enduring persecution, whether it's on your job or in your home or wherever you are, due to your faith in Jesus, then maybe you're in that church there at Smyrna, you see. The third church, the church at Pergamos, we could describe as the compromising church. And this is actually a very scary church. Wouldn't you agree with that? You see, in the church at Ephesus, they wouldn't tolerate people that were teaching the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. But in the Pergamos church, they had people that were teaching the doctrines of the Nicolaitans. Who are the Nicolaitans? Well, the Nicolaitans, and Jesus pointed to them specifically, they were a Gnostic set that taught that the deeds of the flesh had no effect on the purity of the soul. And so that had no bearing whatsoever on a person's salvation. Does that sound familiar to you? Do we hear that kind of teaching today? In the church? Oh, very sadly we do. And variations of that teaching. All goes back to that. The Pergamos church, that compromising church, had people teaching uh, the, the followers to commit fornication. Spiritual fornication. And to worship idols. They were a compromising church. And compromise always results in something, doesn't it? And that's the experience of the fourth church. There at Thyatira. So we could describe the experience of Thyatira as the corrupt church. Because compromise leads to corruption, doesn't it? more times than not. Something's being corrupted if you compromise. Now, in the strictest sense, I guess, you know, but some you could come together on something righteous and compromise, so don't, don't get me wrong here. But that's not the condition of this church here. They're a corrupt church. There were people in that church that Jesus said, and I don't want to spend too much time on this because I want to get into you know, the Church of Philadelphia. But Jesus says there, and you can read that, He said that there were people in this church at Thyatira that knew the depths of Satan. That's a powerful statement there. They allowed Jezebel to teach in that church. You know, the one who called herself a prophetess. And to teach the Christians right principles or wrong principles. Wrong. Then there's the church at Sardis. And this is another very sad testimony from Jesus. We could describe this church as the dead church. You know, in Ellen White's day, there were evidently many Seventh-day Adventists in the church of Sardis because she described them as dead churches. Jesus said, you have a name that you are alive, but actually you're dead. That's what Jesus said. That's how he describes it. But then we come to some wonderful news. And this is the church that I wanted to study with you at this time. And it's the church, Philadelphia. And I think that's a great name, actually. Philadelphia. It's a Greek name, of course. If you break it down, philio is the Greek word for a friend or somebody that you love with tender affection. That's what filio is. And you remember when Jesus asked Peter in John 21 if he loved him? You remember that? He asked Peter, do you love me? And when Jesus, that, that word love there in, in John 21, that first time he used it, that word love was agapeo, which is part of agape. And it's usually used in the New Testament. New Testament to describe a divine love, right? And what was Peter's reply? Peter said, I filio you. 
In essence, he said, Lord, I have tender affection for you. And then Jesus, the second time he asked Peter, do you love me? Again, he used that same word, agapeo. And Peter immediately said, I feel you. I have tender affection for you, Lord. The third time Jesus said that, though, he didn't use the word agapeo when he said love. Now, you go to the New King James or the King James Version, you read it in English, it just says love. But Jesus used two different words here. The third time Jesus asked Peter the question, he said, Peter, do you filio me? So Peter has told him twice, Lord, I have filio for you. I have a tender affection for you. And the third time Jesus says, Peter, do you have filio for me? Do you love me? Do you filio me? Right? And the Bible tells us that Peter was grieved at this. Because the third time Jesus didn't use the word agapeo. And Peter said there, I think it's verse 16 or 17, he said, Lord, you know I do. I've just told you twice that I have this for you. I could get on to why this was going on, but that's not my point. I'm talking about the words that were used. Filio is a word that means you have tender affection for somebody. Then you have the Greek word adelphos. It's the Greek word for brother. So when you put them together, you have filio adelphos or Philadelphia. And that means it's a place of brotherly love. And so I want to tell you, when I was looking at this, I mean, if there was a time we needed Philadelphia among the people of God, I think it's today. Wouldn't you agree? Now, of all the seven churches, and I'm thinking very seriously about getting into more detail with you in the coming weeks, but of all the seven churches, there are only two churches for which Jesus has no condemnation. So there's seven churches, but only two of them have no condemnation. One is the church at Smyrna. That was the persecuted church. And the other is the church of Philadelphia. So we could describe the church of Philadelphia as the faithful church. Do you want to be a member of the Philadelphia church? Interesting enough, there are two churches that receive no word of condom, condom, uh, excuse me, commendation. They received rebuke from the Lord. Those two churches are the church at Sardis. You know what the second church was? Jesus said he was going to spew them out of his mouth. Have you heard that before? That's the church of Laodicea. Now, you know about Laodicea if you've studied Daniel chapter 11 because there was a queen mentioned in Daniel chapter 11. Not by name, but she's referred to. And if you've done any digging, you'll know that her name was Laodice. Laos is the Greek word for people. And Decea has to do with right or judgment. So the word Laodicea has to do with the judging of the people. And so this is the church that lives during the time of judgment. And it could be described in a phrase as the lukewarm church. Hot and cold, that's the way Jesus described them. And so we have the message of the seven churches. And I've described each of them in a nutshell, really, um, with just a phrase. And so let's go to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 8. Because I want to talk about the, the Philadelphia church. And I want you to notice something that Jesus says to the Philadelphia church. It's in verse 8, Revelation 3 and verse 8. He says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength and hast kept my word and hast not denied my name. What has he set 
before the church? He set before them an open door. And it's a door that nobody can shut. Now to get the context of verse 8, we need to back up and we need to know what's said in verse 7. Verse 7 says, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and then it says, and shutteth, and no man openeth. Now that's very important for us to understand here. So, it talks about the person, the holy one, the true one, the one having the key of David. Who's that? Who has the key of David? Who is the Holy One? Who is the true one? That's Jesus Christ, isn't it? That's Jesus Himself. And in the beginning of each of the, the messages to the seven churches, it has certain references, you'll notice, to the descriptions of Christ. It says, The one who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. That's talking about Jesus. And I want you to notice here, when Jesus opens something, nobody can shut it. And when he shuts something, nobody can open it. And that's very important to understand. And I want you to keep that in your mind as we go on here. Okay? And what I would like to get into happens to be one of the most Actually, it is. It's one of the most controversial doctrines that the Adventist movement has believed. If you read any of the books, and I'm not suggesting that you necessarily do, but if you have read any of the books that have been published by former Seventh-day Adventist ministers, and many of them now call themselves evangelical, and, and these books attack the Advent movement, and you read those books, you're going to find that they always attack this doctrine. They open and shut doors. For instance, when a former Seventh-day Adventist pastor by the name of Walter Ray, have you ever heard of him? Walter Ray wrote a book called The White Lie. Now, what do you think that is about? In his book, The White Lie, he included a whole section which he calls, Go Shut the Door. Now, what's that talking about? Well, he's actually talking about this doctrine. Right here. No. So if you look in the books and on the Internet at the books published recently, and this one wasn't recent. It goes back to the early 80s, I think. Uh, you'll find that they always attack this doctrine. Whole chapters are given to the doctrine of the shut door. It's attacked over and over again, which really is amazing to see because this doctrine is all throughout the Bible. (laughs) It really is. Right here in Revelation, it teaches that when Jesus opens something, nobody can shut it, and when he shuts something, nobody can open it. So is there such a thing as a shut door? Yes, there is. I'm amazed to find, and once it's interesting in the Bible, and you you study the Bible, and you come across certain principles and certain doctrines. As you study the Bible more and more, you begin to see some of those doctrines in a lot of areas of the Bible. It can be an underlying part of something. It's really astounding. Have you read, for example, have you read anywhere in the book of Genesis where there is a shut door? I know of two places. Yeah. There was a time when Noah and his family went inside the ark and the door was shut. Who shut that door? God shut it, right? When that door was shut, could anybody open it? Nobody could open it. And the thing is about that incident, everyone outside of that shut door was lost. Isn't that true? There was a time when the angels reached out and took Lot 
and pulled him into his house and shut the door. And I'll tell you, you read that story, you look at that story, everyone that was on the outside of that door that was shut was lost. There is such a thing as a shut door, biblically speaking. But what I really want to study with you this morning is the open door. But for people who are critics and skeptics, I want you to see from the Bible that there is such a thing as a shut door. And I want to tell you, according to Bible prophecy, there was a shut door in the year 1844. There absolutely was. You see, when you reject a vital message from God, you've shut the door yourself. Did you know that? <laughs> so we've got to be very careful, don't we? Did the Jews shut the door of salvation on themselves as a people? Yes, they did. It is serious. If you're a Christian and you don't want the Lord to come back again, is that serious? You profess to be a Christian, but you don't want Him to come back again. Actually, that's a way to commit the unpardonable sin, if you think about it. If in your heart you do not really want the Lord to come right away, you're on your way to committing an unpardonable sin unless you're converted. So it's very serious. If you reject what the Bible teaches. Let's go to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Luke 13. We're going to read verses 22 to 30 here. And it says, And he went through the cities and villages, this is speaking of Jesus, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Let's stop right there just a moment. Have you ever heard a preacher get up and say, and I've heard it before, I heard it a lot when I was a young Christian, I've heard preachers say this, that it's easier to be saved than lost. Have you heard that? You need to be careful with that. Every time you hear somebody proclaim that, that doctrine, easier to be saved than to be lost, look at Luke 13, verse 24, read it and see what Jesus just said. What did he just say? Strive to enter in at the straight gate. Is that easy? If you're in a terrible strait, does that, is that an easy thing? No, it's not. And you're to strive. That's not easy. Just remember that. Verse 25. When once the master of the house is risen up and hath shut to the door... And you begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not which you are. Then shall you begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I know you not which ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are last which shall be first and there are first which shall be last. Now, I could read more texts, but you see it clearly, I think, don't you? There is such a thing as a shut door. And there is coming a time when the master of the house is going to shut the door. <laughs> and remember, when the master of the house shuts the door, nobody can open it. That's what Jesus said. But right now, this moment in time, that hasn't happened yet, has it? And so we go back to the church of Philadelphia. There in Revelation 3. And it was given the message, I have set before thee an open door. And when Jesus opens the door, all the skeptics in the world can't shut that door. I'm glad for that. And so this is a door that has been opened. Now I want to ask you a question. I want you to ponder it. What was the door that was opened to the church at Philadelphia? 
He said, I've set before thee an open door. Now, I've read some preachers say that it was the door of salvation. And I'm like, that's amazing to me. Really? You mean the door of salvation wasn't opened until the Philadelphian church? That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. But I've seen it. They preach that. Now, when you go to the Old Testament, let me ask you this. Where was the worship of God centralized in the Old Testament? Where was the central place, the headquarters, I guess you'd say, for divine worship in the, in the Old Covenant? Where was it at? Church, but more specifically, it was in the sanctuary, wasn't it? Now, let me ask you another question. And none of... And I'm not asking trick questions. I'm not trying to trick you or anything. But I want us to think about this. The sanctuary had more than one door. But I want, to t- I want you to tell me how many doors did it have altogether? When people went to the sanctuary to worship God, how many doors did they have to go through? Or how many were there at the sanctuary? Now, I'm not just talking about the building, the whole thing. You had the courtyard and you had the building. Yeah. Deb's holding up fingers there in the back. Three. There's three. Now, right. Now, they went through the last two doors, spiritually speaking, by faith. Okay. Through the, through the intercession of the priests. But there were three doors for... The, the complete worship process. The courtyard represents things that happen here on earth. Okay, Something happened in the courtyard of the sanctuary that must happen to us, you see. So after the brazen altar, remember the furniture that was in the courtyard, the priest had to go past the laver before they went into the sanctuary itself. That was where they were to be what? What was the laver for? To wash, right? They they had to be cleansed. They had to be purified before they went in to the first compartment. You can't go into the sanctuary if you're not purified. Let's go to Hebrews nine. I'll just get go to that just for a second here. Now I'm not going to read all the context. You can do that for yourself. But look at verse eight. We'll look at verse nine. It says the Holy Ghost. This signifying that the way into the holiest of all. He's saying, the holiest of all, was not yet made manifest. So he's talking about that courtyard experience, see? While as the first tabernacle was yet standing. Well, we had that tabernacle, right? Christ was doing the courtyard ministry, okay? And verse 9 says, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. You see, that was the courtyard experience. It was then present. It was still on this earth, right? The other two doors of the sanctuary in heaven were not open yet. You could only enter there by faith, see? Now, there were people, such as Enoch, that went in there by faith. Enoch lived before people even knew about all these things, really, before even the Old Covenant was made. Did Enoch have a most holy place experience? Yes, he did. He could go clear in to the holy place by faith. But let me ask you this, just getting the context of it and what we're talking about here. Could people have their sins forgiven before Jesus died on the cross? Yes. How? By faith, right? And Hebrews 9 explains that. It's just the same as if, think about this, and you don't see it too much anymore today, but uh, if I give you a promissory note, and I promise that, uh, that at a certain time, I'm going to pay you $10,000. If I have good credit, you can take that note to the bank and you can get money for it. Can you do that? Yes, you can. 
It's not been paid yet. But if my credit's good enough, you can take that note to the bank, you'll get your money for it. That's the way people's sins were forgiven in the Old Testament. They were forgiven by the promise of God. Now the price hadn't been paid for it yet, had it? But they were forgiven by the promise of God. By faith. See? In the same way they could have their sins forgiven, Jesus died on the cross, they could go by faith into the holy place. And then into the most holy place of the sanctuary. By faith. But there came a time when the price actually was paid. And Jesus actually did die on the cross for their sins. And when that happened, and this is important to understand because people are really confused about this. When that happened, there was no more meaning to offering lambs and goats and all of those things anymore. And the the book of Hebrews discusses that in great detail. If you read chapter 7, 8, 9, get into chapter 10, there was no point in that anymore. And what did Jesus do then? Jesus invited his people to come with him by faith and he was going to go into the heavenly sanctuary, wasn't he? But most sadly, the Jewish church refused to go. And there are some in Adventism who are saying today, and it's been a, you know, around, that we must actually go back out the door from which we've come in. Now, if Jesus says that it's time to stop offering your lambs and your goats because the true sacrifice has been offered and he wants you to follow him into the temple in heaven and you refuse to go, how much meaning is left in your religion? None, even though you think it is tremendous. And there are people who are wanting to go back to that stuff and Jesus says there's no more meaning in that yet. I've opened a different door. See? And what gives what actually gives meaning to religion? Isn't the whole foundation of all religion love for God? Isn't that right? And if you don't love God enough to follow him where he goes somewhere and he asks you to follow him, what's the meaning of a religion? Really, it's meaningless, isn't it? <laughs> there was a time when it was meaningful to offer those sacrifices and do all those things in the Old Covenant because it was expressing faith in what was going to happen. But after it happened, do you continue to do that? No, those things had no more meaning. And to continue to do them would show that you were still looking forward to the promise when it had already come, when it had already been met. So the people that refused to go into the holy place of the heavenly sanctuary had a meaningless religion. And there are the Jews today. They refuse to go. They refuse to follow Jesus. All they have left is the ritual. All they have left is the form. They have the ceremony. But the meaning's gone. And this is what Jesus was trying to tell them in Matthew 23, 38. He said, Your house is left unto you what? Desolate. There's no more meaning there. Jesus has left the building. He's not there. It's empty. And when we look at the history of the seven churches and we follow in our our church history books and we compare the experience of the the church with the vision of the seven churches and we look at the, the time period... It's really very, very interesting. Because we find that the church entered the period of Philadelphia right toward the end of the life history of John Wesley. Around the time and after the time of the French Revolution. See, the church had been stagnant. It had been almost dead, just like is described in Sardis. It was like that for over 200 years. And right after the French Revolution, there was a tremendous resurgence in the interest of Bible prophecy. This was all predicted. It was all shown to us in the Bible. 
But there was a resurgence there in all the churches. There were, if you look back at the history, there, there were uh, um, tremendous Bible societies and, and mission societies that were formed during this time. Missionaries started going all over the world. And that happened in the, the latter part of the 18th century, in the early part of the 19th century, you know. Last part of the 1700s, early part of the 1800s. You see this resurgence. So then some time went by. As this was happening, God finally had a a faithful church. And in 1844, he said to them, I am setting before you an open door. What door was this? It was the third door. To the sanctuary. You see, friends, it, it was not the door into the courtyard because that door was open to the Jewish church. And it wasn't the door into the holy place. That had been opened in the time of the apostles. But in 1844 now, the third door was opened. The door of the most holy place. And you know what happens when you open a door that's been closed? People were all curious about it. They began to look inside. And we can read about what they saw when they started to look inside this open door if you go to Revelation chapter 11. You look at verse 19. It says, And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in His temple, what? The ark of His testament. And when the door was opened, people noticed something that somehow they had lost sight of for many centuries in the Christian church. They saw that when when you go further in, not just into the court, not just to see the cross, not just into the holy place, when you get clear inside to the inner shrine of God's temple, there's just one article of furniture. And it's so important that in it, there is a law. And that law, friends, is the foundation of of God's government. It is the the basis of His government for the whole universe, for all creation. And when people began to look into that law, they found out that they'd they'd been what? They'd been breaking it. Have you been breaking it? Has the church been breaking it today? Let me share this with you. It's from the book Faith and Works, page 46. Christ says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. That's Revelation 3, 8. How hard men work to close that door, but they are not able. John's testimony is, And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament we just looked at Revelation 11 verse 19 beneath the mercy seat within the ark were the two tables of stone containing the law of Jehovah God's faithful ones saw the light that shone forth to them from the law to be given to the world and now Satan's intense activity is to close that door of light but Jesus says that no man can shut it men will turn from the light denounce it and despise it, but it still shines forth in clear, distinct rays to cheer and bless all who will see it. Now here's something more you may wish to study later. It's very interesting. Remember there are two apartments to the sanctuary. And what were they called? The first apartment's called the the holy place and the other called what? The most holy place. And the holy place is where you take sin in. That's what the priests did. They took sin in there. Now let me explain that for a moment moment here. Let's, Let's picture in our minds the courtyard, the sanctuary, the building and everything. I come to Jesus as a sinner every single morning seeking not just confession and repentance but restoration, right? to be restored. And when I come to Jesus as my great high priest, and that's what he is right now, 
and I confess to Him my sinful condition, as I repent and as I confess my sins to Jesus, by means of His shed blood, my sins and my guilt are taken away from me. Right? Where does it go? Now think about it. Follow me here. When the people came in the Old Covenant and confessed their sins over the head of the Lamb, where did the guilt go? It was transferred to the sacrifice, wasn't it? Okay. That's why the sacrifice had to die. It went from the person to the sacrifice, and then the life of that sacrifice, which is represented by what? The life is in the blood, was brought into the sanctuary, and it was sprinkled there. Okay? After that, the most holy place is a place where you take sin out. So that's how sin got into the sanctuary. Okay? So sin is brought into the the holy place. And it's taken out in the most holy place. On the Day of Atonement, when the high priest went into the most holy place and he sprinkled the blood, he then came out with all of that sin that had accumulated in there over the year. Okay? And he confessed it over the head of the scapegoat, transferring all the sins of the people from the most holy place to the scapegoat, and then the sanctuary was clean. Okay? It was purified. It was vindicated. It was restored to its rightful place. Okay? Now think about that. What that represents. Because you see, friends, if you're a Christian, you have a case pending in God's court. And if you're a Christian, you have a page in the book of life. And in that book is written down every particular of your life history. And before it's all over, one of two things is going to happen. Let's go to Revelation 3 and let's read about this. We'll read about it in the words given to the the Sardis church. Revelation 3 and verse 5. Here, Jesus, he says, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So if I overcome, what does Jesus promise me? He promises me that he will not blot my name out of the book of life, right? And you can find that in Exodus 32 and verse 33. By the way, this is really lays out this false doctrine of uh, once saved always saved but in Exodus 32 verse 33 says whosoever hath sinned against me him will I blot out of my book so the Lord says that the person that sins against me I'm going to wipe him out of the book I'm going to erase it right and that is the destiny beloved one of those two destinies awaits each one of us Either our sins are going to be blotted out. And sins are blotted out during the times of refreshing. You can read about that in Acts chapter 3. Or our names will be blotted out like it says here. One of the two. What is going to happen to you? Have you really thought this out? Because it does matter. And so I'll tell you. There are a lot of people that want to go into the holy place... But they do not want to ever leave there. They want to stay in that first compartment. They don't want to go into the most holy place and have that experience. They want to bring their sins in and they want to confess and confess and confess and confess. Okay? Now, when we sin, we should confess. That's right. You agree with that? But that's not, the, that's not all there is to it. That's not all there is to true religion. The sanctuary didn't have just one compartment, did it? It had two compartments. And the plan of salvation doesn't just have one part. It's not enough to bring the sin in. The sin has to be taken out. Right? And I'll also tell those who profess to be among the remnant, 
that want to leave the most holy place and go back into the holy place, that you're taking your sins with you when you leave because that door was closed by God when the holy place door was opened by Him. I want to remind you, our mediator is not in the holy place anymore. He's in the most holy place. And if you go back, there's no mediator there. Not for you. Not for me. You cannot open a door that God has closed. You cannot close a door that He has opened. And we have to get this right in our minds, friends. The teaching of the Nicolaitans is still all around us. It's in the church today. Don't be fooled by it. And God has already told us that He's going to cleanse His sanctuary. He's going to purify it. He told us that in Daniel 8, didn't He? He said it in Hebrews 9. Jesus and Moses said, In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. And so the Lord has told us that His sanctuary in heaven is going to be cleansed. And there's only one way it can be cleansed. If you're a Christian, you have a page in the book of life. And on that page, as I said before, all of your sins are recorded. Every sin that you ever committed in your whole life, every sinful thought, every sinful feeling, every sinful word, every sinful action is there. Now your sins can be blotted out and your name remain in the book of life. Is that what you'd like to happen? I would. It's the whole purpose of salvation, isn't it? Does the Bible teach that the sins of the true Christians are going to be blotted out? Yeah, it does. Like I said, Acts chapter 3. That's when it happens. So God has set before us an open door. Have we gone through that door? Do we want to be in the most holy place where Jesus is? Do we want our sins removed by Jesus? That's what He's doing today. If we are willing to be made willing and work with Him. We are to strive to enter in through that gate that He's opened. Do you see the open door? <laughs> I've learned that we as human beings need to make decisions while something's on our mind. Have you learned that? It's hard to make a decision if it's not in your mind. All right? Yeah. If the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, you need to make a decision now. That's why Paul said, today is the day of salvation. And if the Holy Spirit's speaking to you right now, don't wait. Don't say, you know, I'll make a decision later. I'll fully consecrate myself after I think about it for a while. Something could happen between now and then. In fact, you don't know if the Holy Spirit will ever speak to you again. You don't know. But if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you now, you need to make a decision right now. And all you have to do is say, Lord, I want my sins blotted out. I'm willing to cooperate with the Holy Spirit so that can happen. I'm willing to be made willing. I want to do what's right. I want to do what Jesus wants me to do. And then believe that that prayer has been answered. Because you see, God promised it. So let God shut that door to your sins. And we just read, we just studied that when God shuts a door, no man can open it. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this wonderful promise that you've given to us. And we're so thankful for Jesus. That this door that has been opened, we... We want to go through that door. We want to remain in that door. We want to work with Jesus to have our our sins removed from us. We want our names to remain in the Lamb's book of life. Lord, we don't want to turn around and go back out the door. Spiritually speaking, that door has been shut. And we pray for those who are confused by this. We pray that they will be 
shown the truth and that they will accept it. He'll give them discernment, open their minds to this. We thank you so much for your holy word and for the gift of the Holy Spirit that teaches us these words of life. We pray that you forgive us our sins, Lord, and keep us faithful. Please be with us the remainder of this Sabbath day that we may keep it holy, for thou art holy. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.